0: have your Bibles this evening, and you would, uh, find with me the book of Amos. It is the third of the twelve minor prophets in the Old Testament. And so if you want to find about three quarters of the way through the Old Testament, the book of Amos. Or it might in your Bible look like Amos, but it is not. It is pronounced Amos. And as we are going through this series of an overview of each of the twelve minor prophets, we come to our third week. Uh, Amos would have been a man that was not of noble birth. He would have been a, a sheep breeder, and he would have been a tender of sycamore fruit. He would have been an everyday man that God used for an extraordinary purpose. And when we read the book of Amos, it should remind us that whether you have a theological degree whether you are recently saved god can use you you might not think you are as intelligent as someone else or you might think you are the smartest person in the room but truly god can use you you say well Jake i don't have much money or i don't have many talents or or i don't know i've got so many talents i don't know how to use them if that's you no one likes you but uh, that's just a joke That's just a joke. But truly, the fact that we can see in him uh, the fact that God took this man and used him for a remarkable purpose. And the book of Amos is written, um, and this man, it lives in the southern kingdom. If you know anything about what's going on, the nation of Israel has split the northern kingdom or Israel, the southern kingdom in Judah. And if you were growing up like me, reading through the Old Testament, you were thinking, I don't understand. There's a Judah, there's an Israel, it's the same, it's not the same. What's going on? You've got kings at the same time. But the northern kingdom is the kingdom which Amos prophesied to. The northern kingdom, these are very important things, was experienced a great time of financial and military success. By all accounts, if you looked at the reign of Jeroboam II, and you can read about these in the book of Kings, it would have looked like everything was as it should have been. It was everything that they should have celebrated. Tonight, when we think about our country, we think about the wonderful prosperity that God has given us. We think about the fact that we're the greatest military might The world has ever seen but yet if we look closer at our country we are rotting from the inside out think about that in terms of church the only thing people ever ask me about our church is how many people go there and how much money do you take up and I always want to tell them we got too many people and not enough money and I'm just joking that is just a joke Because that's the world's idea of success, is numbers and finances. Think about your own personal life. You might be here tonight saying, Jake, I've got a good job. Uh, I've got enough money. I have everything that I need. But what God tells Amos is go to the northern kingdom and say what you are putting your hope and trust in doesn't matter. And you are missing the most important thing. And that is this, that God wants you to love Him and worship Him. And two, God wants you to be a defender of the poor and the downtrodden. And so when we think about our country in its own entirety, we think about the fact that spiritually we are bankrupt. We have allowed things to go on in this great country that God has promised that He would judge and that He would bring retribution for. When we think about the greed in this country from whether the extremely wealthy or those who refuse to work, we are watching the poor be mistreated. And so what we see is our nation needs to heed the same warning that Amos gave to them. As a church, the same could be said about us. We have more people than anyone in the county. God has blessed us financially. But we must never forget that if we stop worshiping Him, we have lost the blessing of God. If we ever get to a point as a church where we say things like this, and I am guilty of saying it, the government can take care of the poor. Or I struggle with helping the poor because of all of the abuse. I get it. But the moment this church begins to cold and allow their hearts to drift from loving and caring for the poor, we will lose the blessing of God. Now how we do that is a discussion of great debate and we can have that anytime you want to outside of the pulpit, All right. For instance, think about this, and this will be controversial and I'm sorry about this. If you come to this country illegally, Without using the legal means of refugee status, you ought to be sent home. But while you are here, God says you better stand up for the refugee. You better make sure that they're not locked away, that they're not mistreated, that they're not fed. That makes conservative and liberals mad, but it's what the Bible says. You said they shouldn't have come here. I agree with you. But you better make sure that while they're here and on their journey home, that we provide for them. You say, Jake, that doesn't fit into my politics. You're wrong. That's what the Bible says. If you mistreat the refugee, God says, I will not bless you. And so tonight as we look through this passage of Scripture, I believe God is going to hit very close to home for all of us because the two things that all of us struggle with is one, to drift in our worship to God, and two, allow our hearts to sometimes grow cold to those in need. And so tonight, as God brings this word of judgment to the nation of Israel, don't forget, though, that God has a purpose and a plan to extend mercy. And if this country or our church loses the blessing of God because of our sin and wickedness, never forget that God is willing to restore, that God is willing to forgive. And so if you would, stay with me out of a reverence to the reading of God's word. I want you to go to the very back of the book of Amos in chapter 9. And God has told them, judgment's coming. An enemy army is going to destroy you. You are going to be taken captive, but. But he says, after all of that, I'm going to bring you back. I'm not going to destroy you completely. You are my people and I love you. And so starting in verse 11, we see hope. For the future of Israel. On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. If you would, pray with me tonight. Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, even though you bring a message of judgment and correction, Lord, you remind us that once we are your people, we are yours. And while we might go through seasons of correction... Seasons of discipline, because you love us, that you are always working it for our good. Tonight, Lord, I pray that you would help me to say the things that you want me to say. Close my mouth to the things that are not. Lord, forgive me of any sin in my heart, my life. And Lord, you know there's some that can be there that doesn't hinder or grieve your spirit in this place tonight. And Lord, I ask it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. And so if you're taking notes tonight, and I hope that you will, we see God's message to the nations and Israel. If you go to the very beginning of this book, you'll see that God tells the nations around Israel what their sins are. He tells them why He is going to bring judgment on them, but then He focuses in on His people, the nation of Israel. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, It says, "...the words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoia, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah king of Judah." He was the king of the southern half. "...and in the days of Jeroboam the son of Joash king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, "...the Lord roars from Zion, and utters his voice from Jerusalem." The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and on the top of Carmel withers. What he is saying here is that God has a word for them. That it doesn't come from Amos. It doesn't come from another man. That God has noticed what is going on in the nation of Israel, in the nations around them, and he has a thought. He has a verdict. And friends, it is a reminder to us that while we might fool our friends, while we might fool the people we go to church with, we might be able to fool our community, God sees it all. God sees the conversations in the secret place. God sees the feelings and emotions that we are hiding and burying in our heart. And I can tell you, in my life, I can bury them well. And it usually involves my children. When something happens to one of my children that I think is wrong, that I think is sinful, that I think should not happen, there can become in me a desire to not forgive. There can be a desire in me to think that person is no good. But yet what we should be reminded of is that God sees it. And God doesn't whisper from Zion, if you notice in those words. He roars from Zion. That's the idea of a lion roaring, and when that happens, everything pays attention. The rest of the uh, the pride or the herd or whatever they I can't remember what Lion King said movie, but it's been a while. All right, and the enemies of a lion pay attention when it roars. The gazelle's like, oh no, right? You know, I'm on the menu. And God says He wants you to know and He wants you and I to hear because God, when He speaks to His people, has something He wants to accomplish. And tonight I hope that you will know that God is showing us that the secret things of our heart, the things that are important to God, should be important to us. I wrote these notes today and I think this is very true. God has a word for His people. What I have found out the last 11 years of being your pastor is this. Preaching and caring for the flock are the best part of pastoring. Preaching in front of you the Word of God verse by verse. If you don't like it, take it up with the author. And going and caring for God's people in times of sickness, in times of pain, in times of hurt, in times of loss, in times of celebration. Those are the moments that make pastoring a joy. But things like preparing sermons are not always very enjoyable because you have to think about the weight of what is going to be said. Once I stand behind this desk, the nerves and the fear is gone. But I can tell you before that, it is a miserable experience because I understand the significance of the Word of God, the power that it has the misdirection it can cause in someone's life, the confusion and stumbling block that it can become. But what makes pastoring and leading churches no fun are things like committee meetings, staff decision, calendar choices, budget decisions, all of the stuff that must be done but is always done with the preference and opinions of other people. It's in that moment when you can't say, thus says the Lord, that leading is no longer possible. And so what I can tell you is when Amos gives this word, it is because he is not trying to tell them about what color the pavement should be or what color the carpet should be. He is telling them this is a make-or-break moment in your life. This is a make-or-break moment in this nation. (coughs) And God has a word for you. What we see in Amos chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, is that word. What is it that God has against these kingdoms? He starts with the southern kingdom. And he says, starting in verse 4, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept His commandments. Their lies led them astray, lies which their fathers followed. But I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the places of Jerusalem. God says, my accusation against you is wickedness. It is the wickedness to disregard the Ten Commandments, the commandments I have given you, and to do whatever you want. The the northern kingdom gets something different, though, starting in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. And this is what it says. Because they sell the righteous for silver, and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth which is on the head of the poor and they pervert the way of the humble. And man and his father go in to the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink of the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. He starts by saying, first and foremost, but their mistreatment of the poor. They are willing to sell out the righteous things of God for silver. The New Testament calls that being a a hireling. Serving God and sacrificing the things of God when silver is necessary. I think it's very fitting when you think about what Jesus was sold for by Judas was 30 pieces of... The significance is not lost. God had told them, if you will love me, if you will follow me, if you will obey my commandments, I will be your God. I will bless you, I will take care of you, I will provide for you. But God says here, you have sold the things of mine for nothing, and the poor for a pair of sandals. That means that they would take advantage of any opportunity to gain something, even if it meant taking advantage of the poor slave labor of the day. That means in order to make a buck, we will not pay them enough. Think about that in today's terms. Think about all that goes on in this country. Think about what is going on there. God says, I will have no part of you getting wealthy and profitable on those who have nothing. And so what does that mean today? It means if you're a Christian business owner, you ought to pay the people that work for you a decent and living wage that is honorable. It goes on in verse 7. And says, they pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor. He says, not only do they want the things that the poor have, they want the very dirt that's on them. I don't know if you know this or not, but dirt serves no purpose. It's something you clean up and sweep off. And these people who would have been poor and had nothing and not had the privileges of the rich and the famous, God's saying literally, you want the dirt off their back for your advantage, for your benefit, for your game, And God says, this will not stand. It goes on here, it talks about a father and a a, a man, and we kind of think about sexually, but what, what he's talking about here is idolatry. He's talking about going in and doing the wicked things at the altars and taking a pledge. What this means in this text is this people were willing to sell themselves into slavery to pay off their debt. But what they were doing were manipulating people, ripping people off, taking what they had, so they had to sell themselves into slavery. And what it says there, and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. What it means is they are taking the things that other people had and are enjoying them while they worship. It means they're strutting in on Sunday going, we have destroyed that person's life, but God, we worship you. God, we walk into a church and everything's fine, everything's great, but I have lied and cheated and stole and manipulated and ruined people. But God, here I am with holy hands. Clean hands. And God says, I will not be mocked. God says, I see it. And judgment is coming. The second thing I want you to see tonight from this passage of Scripture is how God speaks to His people and their leaders. In chapters 3 through 6, and we won't read it all for the sake of time, it talks about all of this. It talks about that Israel did not accept correction. They were unwilling to repent. That There was punishment coming. We see in chapters 5 that the prophet weeps over Israel. He laments, saying, oh, I want you to repent. God wants you to repent. He even calls them to repentance in chapter 5, but they will not listen. And so if you're familiar with chapter 5, which you're probably not, but if you've read ahead, I hope that you have, you see that God says the day of the Lord is coming. Judgment is coming. But I want you to see in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Because once again, Amos goes back to the fact, this is not from him. He's not some underprivileged worker that is preaching against the man. He's not some sheep breeder that's been taken advantage of, that is vengeful and vindictive. He says, no, God has sent me to you, because God loves you and God cares about you, and God sees the path that you are heading on, and God wants to show mercy. But look here in verses one through eight of chapter three. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I bought up from the land of Egypt. Now stop right there. He's like, Don't you remember being slaves? Don't you remember what it was like to have nothing and to be taken advantage of by your masters? I set you free. I brought you to this land. I gave you houses that you didn't build, vineyards that you didn't plant. I gave it all to you. And here you are taking advantage of those who cannot defend themselves. Taking from those who have no ability to fight or to stand on their own. Verse 2 goes on and says, You only have I known of all the families of earth. Therefore I will punish you for your iniquity. He says, you're my people. He said, I didn't make this covenant with anybody else. Not the Egyptians. Not the, the Ammonites. Not the 17 other ites that are in the Bible. He says, I made this covenant with you. You are my special and loved people. You're supposed to be the example for a lost and dying world. You're supposed to be the city on a hill. You're supposed to be the standard that points the world to me. Here here you are. And he goes on in verse 3 and says, Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he has caught nothing? Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there is no trap for it? Will a snare spring up from the earth if it has caught nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in the city, will not the people be afraid? If there is a calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Verse 7, surely, it's guaranteed, it's 100%. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? He says, I come with a warning from God, not a secret, not hiding it, but open before you. Listen. Friends, I want you to think about it. It's the same way that goes on here. Same way that goes on in any service. Pastor preaches a message. You sitting there fall under conviction and know the Word of God's teaching to you. But yet you say no. That's why the Bible is full of warnings. Do not resist the Holy Spirit. Do not resist the Spirit. Harden not your heart. And you get up and say, you know what? I know i got pride in my heart, but you know what? I'll deal with it later. I know I've got unforgiveness in my heart. I know the sermon was about unforgiveness, but I'm going to hold on to it. I know I love money more than Jesus, but you know what? I'm going to hold on to it. What God is saying to you is He's roaring from heaven. He loves you. He has a message for you. He wants you to hear it. He doesn't want you to get to heaven someday and be like, oh, that was wrong. You didn't know about it. No, the Spirit of God will search you. The Bible says it is here to convict us. And to show us. And so if you get to heaven and say, well, I just didn't know unforgiveness wasn't a problem. God's going to say, you liar. You heard sermons. You heard songs. You read scripture. There is no excuse. That's why the word of God is so powerful because it talks about everything. People say, Jake, that was a political sermon. No, if the Bible speaks about it, God doesn't want it hidden. God wants us to preach about lust homosexuality, greed, pride, division, gossip why? because he gave us his word and says boldly proclaim it. Preach the word in season and out of season. There is no excuse for a pastor to pastor a church and not preach the whole counsel of God. Every bit of it. And I'm telling you as we've went through 1st and 2nd Samuel, there's a whole bunch of it I'd have skipped. I remember preaching through 1 Corinthians to get to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 about the sexual sin and thought I'd skip it. I'd just jump right to chapter 6. But we have to trust that God loves us enough to know the sin in our hearts, the sin in our life, the sin in our marriage and say, I want to set you free. God wants to break the chains that are holding us. Amos chapter 5 verse 24 says it like this but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. God says, I don't want you just to be a little generous. I don't want you to be a little godly. I don't want you to defend the poor a little bit. I want it to be like a mighty river. That it is just flowing, that it is accomplishing, that it is doing what it's necessary. Caring for the poor should not be the exception of the church. We ought to be doing it so much that it hurts. We ought to have testimonies where, you know what, we helped that family and they took advantage of us. Dang it. Not going to stop us. You say, oh, Jake, that's bad stewardship. I'm not talking about giving everything away, but a $62 light bill isn't going to kill us. That's all right. You don't have to agree with it. I'm right. Standing up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. Defending the weak and the innocent. Being an instrument of good in our community should not be the exception. It should be the norm. Things like food pantries and crisis closets. Things about being there for families when they lose loved ones. Being there at the hospital and the nursing home. One of our greatest ministries that you will never hear about is something that goes on at our hospital. You might not know this, but there are a lot of families that go into the hospital that have no one. They leave from a nursing home, they leave their home, and their kids' relationships are bad, and they have no clothes except for the nightgown that the hospital gives them. And now we have partnered for years now with our therapy department to provide sweatpants, sweatshirts, and socks, underwear. You say, Jake, why is that important? You ever walk through the hospital with a gown with no underwear on? That ain't pleasant for nobody. You know how embarrassing that is when you can't take care of yourself and you've messed yourself and here you are and have no dignity and no nothing and someone comes along and says, we would love to give you a pair of underwear, we'd love to give you a pair of sweatshirts, we'd love to give you a pair of shorts, and this is because we love you. Why? Because that should be the normal, not the exception. We ought to be the people in this community. God has given us the size, He's given us the resources, and He has given us the talent to reach into this community, into the brokenness, into the pain, into the vulnerability, and say, here we are. We are here to love you. A few years ago I found myself, I think Lori Houghton and I, I think Leanne Jones painting the preschool bathrooms. I never dreamed when I got my master's degree that I would be laying on my hands and knees painting behind a little boy's urinal toilet. I don't know if you know this or not, but the aim's not very good at that age. But why? It needed to be done. They needed someone to do it. They picked an ugly color in one of the rooms, but that's okay. It's not my place. Why? Because when the community is in need of something, we should be the people. We should be there to show them that we love and care about them. Amos chapter 5 verse 4 says it like this, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and leave. He says it's not just about good works though. You've got to follow me. You've got to love me. You've got to want a relationship with me. Because what happens in many churches is they become so socially just-minded That all they want to do is good things and help people and and be kind and loving to everyone. That they forget the principles of God's word. That's why if you were to go to Chicago tonight and you were to go downtown and look at all the churches, they would all have rainbow flags and rainbow light poles and rainbow signs on their churches because they want to love a group of people. But yet the Bible says you cannot compromise the teaching of God's word. You must stand that it is sin, that it is wickedness, that no one enters the kingdom of heaven without repentance, but yet we must seek Him, but seek to love others. Amos chapter 5, verse 14, because you might still be arguing with me in your mind. Seek good and not evil, that you may live, so the Lord God of hosts will be with you, as you have spoken, hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. What he's saying is somebody ought to be standing up for the poor. Someone ought to be defending those who cannot defend themselves. We see it in America all the time. If you're rich enough, wealthy enough, got a good lawyer, you can pretty much get away with anything. But we ought to be there standing in the gap for the single mother who cannot pay for a lawyer. We ought to be there standing for the single mother trying to raise her family, but yet she's been cheated by the system. I'm not telling you we become the government. I'm not telling you we should become socialists because that's wrong. But we ought to be giving and loving and serving people until it hurts. It should be our example. And if it hurts us financially enough, I will be bivocational. That is fine with me. Why? Because whatever it takes to love the people of this community, whatever it takes to show the hurting and the broken that this is not a country club for the rich and the famous and the elite of Hamilton County. This is a hospital for the broken and the hurting and the needing and the wanting. And I'm glad that God has sent you that can give generously and wonderfully. I'm thankful for you. God says we don't esteem the rich or the poor above each other, but we must never Forget the hurting. Third and final thing, and I'm going to be quick. We see God's judgment and restoration. In Amos chapter 9, verse 1, it says, I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and He said, Strike the doorpost, and the thresholds may shake, and break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees from them shall not get away, and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. If you know anything about Israel's history, you know that God was bringing an enemy army to destroy the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom repented and bought itself a little more time, but God brought an enemy army to thoroughly destroy the northern kingdom. And when we read that, it should cause us to stop because these are God's people. He loves them. He cares about them. They are unlike any other people on the earth. But it's a reminder to us that none of us is above sin. None of us is above the consequences of sin. You might be the pastor. You might be a deacon. You might be a song leader. You might be God's gift to this church. But look up here. None of us are above the correction of God, myself included. This afternoon, I have seen my temper probably as bad as it has been in a long time. And that's saying something because it can get pretty bad in a hurry. And as I was driving here tonight, and I mean I would have fought a bear and give the switch to the bear, all right? God had to stop me and say, hey, look up here. Before you get up there and you preach, you better deal with it. You better deal with it. I'm not saying he'd have struck me dead right here, but that's how I felt. None of us are above the judgment and correction of God if he loves you. If he loves you. Some of you have saw my fourth child today and her face. She was running at home this week, slipped and fell, hit the floor, almost busted her stitches open again, and her chin looks like she fought Muhammad Ali when he still knew what he was doing. That thing is sticking out. It looks like a witch costume. It is black. It is blue. It is nasty. And when I saw that, all I could do was hug her. I'm like, I'm sorry your mom is so mean to you. (laughs) Her mom didn't do it. Don't turn us into DCFS. One of her sisters pulled her down. And it was all, she was hurt. She was wounded. She needed love. She needed grace. She needed mercy. But about three days ago, when she looked up at her sister and said, I hate you. There was no hugging and loving going on in that moment. It was the corrective rod of discipline that says we do not talk to other human beings that way. Why? Because none of us are above the correction and love of God if we really belong to Him. And so tonight when we read this, I hope that you will see that God is willing to forgive, that God was willing to restore. We looked at how this chapter ends. And how the book ends that God is going to bring them back during the millennial kingdom. That thousand year reign that Christ has on earth and He is going to bless the nation of Israel in this land through the church and through the Gentiles. He says even though you're going to face judgment, it's not forever. It's loving correction. James, the first chapter, says it best like this in verses 26 and 27. If any among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. If you want to know what real church likes looks like, it's about taking care of kids who have no one to stand for them. It's about being there for widows who have lost their loved one and are struggling with grief and providing for themselves. And third, it is to live godly, to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This very afternoon, one of our widows, Eileen Hopper, most of you know Eileen, Eileen fell and broke her hip. She's in Mount Vernon right now, going to have surgery probably tomorrow or the next day. She's a widow. Her husband passed away. But Members of this church for I don't know, 50 years. We ought to love her. Care for her. It's not just the pastor's job. It's true religion. It's true relationship with God that we care about the broken. I think about Sister Wilma who's in the nursing home next to the hospital. member of this church for probably 70 years. Do we visit and care and pray for her? Sister B who is at Fox Meadows, Sister Marcella, who just lost her husband. And the list goes on and on and on and on and on. Where is our love to them? You say, Jake, that's your job. You're right, and I will do it. But it's not just my job, it's yours. There are more widows and orphans than just ours. The community is full of them. What I can tell you about most churches is, when I talk to elderly people, And I ask things like, when was the last time your pastor visited? When was the last time a deacon visited? I can tell you it's crickets. So what I can tell you is there is a great need for this church to fill if we will just fill it. And I know that what God's word says is this. He will bless it. Father, tonight we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank You that You proved Your love for us, that Jesus died upon the cross, that He was buried, and that He rose again. Lord, thank You for loving us. Lord, thank You for giving us Your Word that is not always comfortable, that I don't even always agree with when I start. But Lord, thank You for Your Holy Spirit that convicts us, that deal with us, that shows us the needs of our heart. Father, tonight I pray for this church. Lord, the potential that You have given them, It's unlimited. The people they can reach, Lord, is a multitude. But God, help this congregation. Lord, help me to love you in such a way that says, God, we're putting all the stuff away that doesn't matter. And we're going to be used by you. Father, help us to build a relationship with lost and broken and hurting people. Love them and reach them for you. Father, tonight I do pray for all those widows and orphans and downtrodden, Lord, those who have been the victims, that you would fight for them, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, especially those in spiritual bondage that need to be set through free through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, I ask it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.